A reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 18, starting with verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, while he was waiting and sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, Will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. The word of the Lord. A reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The word of the Lord. The Gospel according to St. Matthew. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them 
because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his 12 disciples to to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. The gospel of the Lord. Good morning. Good to be with you all this morning. Once again, happy Father's Day to all the dads. It's a special day. Um, uh, uh, Lucy told me that today in honor of Father's Day, I needed to pull out all the dad jokes. Um, She asked me right before she went up to class, she said, did you put the dad jokes in there? And and I actually forgot to write the dad jokes in there, but I don't think that's going to be a problem because I think they're probably going to come out of me naturally as I go through this today. Uh, We're also in this season of ordinary time, the season of Pentecost, or the season after Pentecost, depending on how you describe it. And today we have these great stories of like hospitality, the hospitality of God, the hospitality that uh, God's people have in response. And we catch in this first story in the Old Testament, we catch Abraham and Sarah in this season of waiting on the promise. They're waiting on what God said that God would do and God would do in their midst. They're waiting. If you remember last week, we looked at the calling of Abraham in chapter 12. And then again in chapter 15, God makes an oath with Abraham. God promises that they will have children. And that even though he and his wife are old and unable to do so on their own, that God promises that he and his descendants, Abraham and his descendants, will be a blessed people. They'll be a nation. And that all nations will be blessed by them. By the time we've reached chapter 18 here, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are just waiting on this promise. Okay, you said this thing was gonna happen. Now, when is it gonna happen? Then we have three guys who show up in this story. Verse two, they eat with Abraham and Sarah and one of them makes this bold pronouncement. I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So these three figures, these three guys or people or not people or whatever they are show up, we don't know who they are. Like, in fact, their identity remains mysterious. It seems like they might be God, okay? So there's these three figures, but they speak with one voice, but they also might be angels. The early church fathers seem to talk about them as angels. We're not told. You might know this familiar um, piece of art, this icon from the 15th century called the, the Hospitality of Abraham. And all the background pieces of this piece of art 
have to do with this story that we're reading here. There's a mountain and there's, um, there's a, a tree and all these kind of things. Rublev has this story in mind. And this is because many of the church fathers believed that these strangers were somehow a reflection of the triune God. The one God speaking with one voice, but yet three persons. Now, the truth is, we don't know that for sure. <laughs> the story doesn't say that that's the case. It's enough to say that the three visitors represent the voice of God to Abraham and Sarah. They are speaking God's word to Abraham and Sarah. But we see that even before they make the announcement, Abraham responds. There's something in them that he sees that they are the divine voice or representatives of God in some way. And he responds with hospitality. So he hurries and he tells Sarah, bake bread, verse six. Then he runs off himself and he gets the choice calf. And in doing so, Abraham is reflecting the nature of God. God is always loving. God is always hospitable. God is always giving. In fact, we could even say in this story, the lines between the host and the guest are blurred. Also, we see this element of hospitality that's so necessary in the Christian faith. It's necessary because in a sense, everyone you meet in the world is a traveler or a stranger. We are here one day and we are gone the next. Everyone you meet is in some sense transient. The visitors then make this birth announcement, telling Abraham and Sarah that by this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Now in the Bible, birth proclamations are necessary and they're really important because they represent change. They represent a promise. New life is coming. Hope is coming. This is how God works. In the midst of something that seems impossible, possibility springs up. Abraham and Sarah are then called to trust in the promise, which is really trusting in God himself. Will God be faithful? Will he be true to the promise? Is it even possible? Now, faith in God is actually scandalous. It's not like an ordinary thing that we do. It doesn't feel natural always to have faith. Faith, by its very definition, is trusting in something when we can't see it. We don't see the results of it. In a world where we're so often taught to trust ourselves, the people of God have to trust that he will always be faithful. If you notice, for Abraham and Sarah, this hope is deferred. It has been deferred from chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 18. But then even here, they're told a year from now, you're going to have a son. So even at the end of this story, Sarah's not pregnant, right? They're having to trust. The child is not yet born. It will be born on a future day. At the end of our passage, Sarah is still barren. The couple holds on to a promise, but it's a not yet promise. There's more to unfold. All right, in response to the man's declaration, Sarah laughs and says, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Sarah's response is so often the response that we have when we hear words of hope, words that are just too good to be true. Now, there are some things we feel like it's reasonable to hope for. So sure, we might be able to hope for perseverance through a difficult time, hope that we can sleep at night, hope that maybe our candidate will get elected. Surely we can hope for those things. 
we have some control over those things, right? So we can hope and have some anticipation that those will go our way. But hope that there's a long-term substantive change in our lives and in the world. Hope that we can be forgiven of our reckless sin. Hope that there's more than what we can see to this life. Hope for something which seems impossible. Well, that's so unlikely, it's hilarious. (laughs) We laugh at that too. The Lord asks Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, well, I really have a child now that I'm old? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? That question is posed to us today. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? It's asked when we face uncertain times in our lives, when hope is thin, Is anything too difficult? When we're in the midst of suffering, is anything too hard for the Lord? When we see our kids go through something challenging or difficulty, we go, gosh, I'm no way in control of this. So question, is there anything too hard for the Lord? When the world seems upside down, is anything too hard for the Lord? This is the question that will be asked of Abraham's family for generation after generation after generation. Is anything too hard for the Lord? In times of exile, the people of God will wonder, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, when we read this story of Sarah laughing, I don't think we should look at her too harshly. This reading doesn't demean Sarah. There's no words of condemnation towards her for her laughing not even for the fact that she denies that she laughed in the first place. Her laughter reveals the overwhelming nature of the announcement. Of course, the question, is anything too hard for the Lord, is not a dismissive question either. The way that we could turn this into a trite statement is by discounting pain. Now, I've been part of Christian traditions before where sometimes we go through difficulty and then we don't even say it's a difficulty. We got to confess our way out of it, right? We got to say, no, I'm not sick. I'm healed in Jesus' name, right? My throat's not scratchy right now. It's just getting healed. It's on the way to healing, right? But no, that's not the Christian response. That's not what this story does. The Christian story has space for the full weight of our circumstances, even the painful ones, acknowledging evil for what it is. We might say today, whenever we see evil at work, we call that out. Oppression is wrong. Division is wrong. Violence is wrong. Human beings are not meant to live in broken relationships. That's sad. Sickness is not God's intention for the world. It's wrong when people who are entrusted with authority take innocent lives. Prejudice is wrong. Racism is wrong. Institutional injustice is wrong. And... And nothing is too hard for the Lord. It's interesting, after God says this to Abraham, Sarah denies that she laughs. She says, I didn't laugh. And God says, yes, you did laugh. That's like literally just what it says. (laughs) I I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. You did laugh. I think about times with our kids (laughs) where that's the interaction, right? Um, Yes, you did do this. No, I didn't. Actually, yes, you did do that. (laughs) But the back and forth between God and Sarah is left unresolved at the end. This tells us something important about God, that God dialogues with us in suffering. God allows us 
to speak back to him, even in the times when we laugh in his face, to cry out in pain and to say, how long, O Lord? You promised this. This is not your character and your nature. Why is this happening? God invites us into dialogue with himself as all true relationship does. In this, God reveals God's self as hospitable because he makes space for us. This is God's grace, not just that he's done something for us, but he has made space for us to enter into true relationship with himself. Now, in the New Testament, we see Mary presented as the one who had faith in God's promises. She is called blessed because of it, and she becomes a model of faith for the church. The fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, to Sarah, to Mary, the ultimate fulfillment is Jesus, who says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. At the end of our story, Sarah sits with barrenness. The route of God's promise always goes through suffering. It's never free of tension. It's always struggle. God will always fulfill the promise, but we live in a world where we don't see it in fullness. I'm not gonna take too much time on our Romans reading today because we actually had this reading at Lent. We get it three times in the lectionary cycle, which is interesting. It shows that it's important. But we've had, um, we've had it a couple times. But today, I would hope that we'd see from this reading the ultimate hospitality and generosity of God. How God's great love for us undergirds us even when we face difficulties. It's really clear in this reading that we've not achieved our way into God's family, that it is only by God's love that we are made right and we're brought into the family of God. And when true suffering happens in our lives, it produces endurance. I don't know about you, but I've met a few Christians in my life who I would say have been through a few things. They've suffered a lot. They've been through a lot of pain. They've learned about trust and about heartbreak. Many of you have been through some of those things. And there's something about endurance that builds up in us in hard times. I can make it through some things because God has brought me through some things. And as a pastor, when a person faces difficulty, my prayer for you, for that, for that person the first prayer is primarily that you would know that God loves you. It's the most important thing in the midst of suffering and in the midst of difficulty that you would be reminded. In fact, if I've ever prayed for you over a hard circumstance, you will hear me probably as a broken record over and over again say, Lord, I pray that they would be reminded of your love. Be reminded that you love them no matter what they face in the midst of this. Because living in love changes the way we respond to suffering. It changes how we think about and how we process suffering. When we talk about endurance, endurance is a difficult word in a world that wants everything instantly. We struggle with this idea of process, of putting in the work even when we don't see immediate results. But our sufferings, according to Paul, somehow have a transformative effect for the Christian. In the midst of suffering, we are changed into the kind of people we were created to be. In other words, when we long, when we struggle with that which is not right in our lives, in the world, when we are faithful in the midst of difficulty, it changes who we are. 
We develop fruit in our lives. And that character then produces hope for the world as it should be. So Christians become an enduring people. Our character is formed because we have seen God's faithfulness. And that character produces hope. So we become a hopeful people. And then Paul says that hope does not put us to shame. So we may look foolish to the world, hoping for something we can't see, we can't control, but we are sustained by something deeper, something which grows out of peace with God. And then verse eight is central to the whole thing. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Karl Barth was perhaps the most influential theologian of the 20th century. He lived and he wrote during the time of World War II. And he was instrumental in leading really the only group of resistance against Hitler within the German church. Barth even wrote the famous Barman Declaration, which uh, pushed back against government control of the church during this time. It's reported that Bart was once asked what he would say to Hitler if he ever had the chance to meet this monstrous man who was destroying Europe and who would ruin the whole world if he wasn't stopped. What would he say to this guy? And it was assumed that Barth would just offer this withering criticism, this harsh prophetic critique calling out Hitler for his misdeeds. But Bart replied instead that he would do nothing other than quote Romans 5, 8 to Adolf Hitler. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because he believed that only such unparalleled mercy and forgiveness could have prompted the Fuhrer's genuine repentance. If he were to accuse him, even though he would have been just in accusing him of his dreadful sins, he would have prompted Hitler's self-righteous defense, his angry justification of what he saw as necessary deeds. Ralph Wood writes, we know the terrible extent of sin exactly and precisely to the terrible extent of God's forgiveness. Hence, Bart's insistence on the stunning paradoxes of the gospel. God imprisons us, says Bart, by flinging wide our cell door. God's judgment, quote, accuses man by showing him that all the charges against him have been dropped. It threatens him by showing him that he is out of danger. God has been generous towards us, has made space for us even as we are in reckless sin. And he's done so in ways we can't even comprehend. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in our gospel reading, Jesus observes that his people are sheep without a shepherd. And he's describing, of course, the Jewish community of his day. But the truth resonates with us today. We're often rudderless. We're often sheep without a shepherd. We feel thrown about by the cultural changes and the messiness of our everyday life. So what does Jesus tell his disciples to do in such a situation? Well, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. So the first thing he tells them to do is to pray. Ask God to bring laborers for the harvest. So when surveying the pain of the world, the impulse is communicate with God. 
communicate this to God and say, Lord, make it right. Bring people for this. But we often stop there. After he tells them to pray, he sends the disciples. So pray, and then you're to go and be the answer to the prayer that you just prayed. I think this gives us a sense of the Christian vocation in the midst of suffering, um, of, of need and suffering, to pray and then to act. The two always go together. As we pray, we become a people who want to live a certain kind of way. So when you start to pray over and over again, you get in a pattern and rhythm of prayer, you want to start acting in different ways. Well, likewise, when you see the brokenness of the world and you serve in the midst of that world, it only causes you to turn to prayer. Those two always go together. Jesus then gives authority to his disciples. And Matthew takes the opportunity to give us all of their names at this point. And they're given the descriptor of the apostles, which means messengers or witnesses of Jesus. This group of Jesus' disciples, and I won't go into detail today, we've done it before about how disciples were chosen in the ancient Jewish world, but this group of people was not particularly distinguished. They didn't have great resumes that stood out. And I think this is so important to emphasize because we as the church stand in the tradition of the apostles. We carry on the work that was birthed here. So if you ever go through this feeling, which we all go through, of if we go, I don't know that I'm up to that. <laughs> I don't know that I'm up to that task. We can remember that it's really only because of God's calling that we're able to fulfill it. Stanley Hauerwas, I love what he says. He says, Christianity is not a philosophy that can be learned separate from those who embody it. If the truth is that Christ were a truth that could be known in principle, we wouldn't need apostles. But the way the gospel is known is by one person being for another person the story of Christ. Jesus summons the disciples to him, and so summoned, they become for us the witnesses who make it possible for us to be messengers of the kingdom. The disciples are not impressive people, but then neither are we. Their mission, as well as our own, is not to call attention to ourselves, but to Jesus and to the kingdom. Love what Hauerwas says here, because it's this idea of the only way the gospel is really known is life on life, is relationship. This isn't some abstract principle that we pull out of the air and then we go kind of download it into people's brains. No, we are called to be the gospel in the world. Jesus' insistence here is interesting. When he tells them, only go to the lost sheep of Israel. This seems kind of strange to us. He specifically says, don't go to Samaritan's houses and don't go to Gentiles' houses. Why does he do that? Like, would it be so bad for the Gentiles and Samaritans to hear the good news of Jesus? It doesn't seem very hospitable of him to say this. But we have to remember that Jesus is first there as a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, to his family, that God has chosen a particular family and that family will bless the world. Israel was, has always been a microcosm of what God wants for the entire world. Before his death and resurrection and ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit, we see Jesus centers his ministry on Israel, on the people of God. He's fulfilling the story of Abraham. 
Israel's calling then has always been to bless the entire world. So by telling his disciples to only go to the lost sheep of Israel, he's showing his love, his fulfillment of the promise. He's not given up on his people. And there would come a day when the whole world would experience the glory of God. Now, we do see in the life of Jesus these glimpses of the broader story, okay? So Jesus focuses his ministry only on or primarily on the people of Israel, but then we start seeing these outsiders who kind of push their face against the glass, who are kind of going, do we get in on this story too? So we see it several places in Jesus's ministry that he heals a Syrophoenician woman. He speaks to a Samaritan woman about living water. Even at his birth, foreigners, non-Jewish people come from far away to see him. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, because of Christ, because of Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, this whole story begins to break wide open and we see it described in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit and the church move from Jerusalem to Samaria, to an Ethiopian eunuch, and then to the Gentiles. So Jesus says to his disciples here, as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. To proclaim the kingdom of God is to proclaim liberation. That's what I hear in these words, is I hear these words of liberation. You are set free. You're set free from death. You're set free from the counterfeits of this world. If God's kingdom is near, it means judgment on all the false kingdoms. Those things which don't look like the kingdom of God are being revealed for what they are. But when we think about our, the gospel as proclaiming liberation, that's so different from how we're often taught in our world to respond to opposition. Our consistent tendency in our culture is to try to destroy the opposition. In online conversations, in heated debate, it's often this opportunity to destroy or to own our interlocutor. This is a movement towards violence, towards destroying the the other side, towards dehumanizing them. So what we do in that is we, when we engage in that, is we dehumanize them, but we're also doing something that just never works. Like if you actually dehumanize somebody who has a different opinion of you and you're trying to get them to change their position by dehumanizing them, you're going to find it just doesn't work. Very few people change their perspective because of dehumanizing language used against them. So how do we respond when we encounter somebody we think is wrong? We don't respond with violence because or dehumanizing language, which is a type of violence. Because what that's doing is it's using, even if that person is, gosh, they are an instrument of the devil, right? Uh, using the instruments of the devil against that is just using their own toolkit, right? Instead, we follow God as he reveals and as he heals, This ought to deeply inform how we speak to those who hold different views from our own. As we speak to our families, as we post on social media, as we raise our kids, we have to ask ourselves, are my words revealing? 
Are my words healing? Are they loving? Are they hospitable? I love how the late Cambridge scholar Herbert Butterfield says it. Let us take the devil by the rear and surprise him with a dose of those gentler virtues that will be poison to him. At least when the world is in extremities, the doctrine of love becomes the ultimate measure of our conduct. And then Jesus ends this by saying, freely you have received, freely give. This is a call to a kind of radical hospitality, radical generosity, because the kingdom of God is open-handed, calling us to lay down what we have for the other. Moments of hospitality may actually become sacred spaces in a divided world. Think about the life of Jesus. Everywhere he goes, he throws an open invitation party. At these meals, these parties, Jesus is the host and the guest. You ever thought about that? He gives and he receives. So Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus hosts him, but Jesus is the one who heals Zacchaeus and gives him ultimately what he needs. Jesus goes to the home of Mary and Martha. They host him, but Jesus changes their lives. At the Last Supper, the disciples make the preparations, but Jesus washes his disciples' feet. At the road to Emmaus, the disciples host Jesus at their home, but he breaks bread for them, and he opens their eyes to who he really is. There's something that happens when we are open-handed and generous with others. It changes us, and it changes them. Jesus also said that whenever we open-handedly provide for those in need, we're serving him. The communion meal that we're going to receive in a few minutes is a regular embodiment of this. We prepare a table. Historically, the church has brought forth as part of their offering, has brought forth bread that comes from the earth, wine that comes from the earth, have brought forward these things. We prepare a table. We make all of the preparations necessary because we believe that God is with us here. But ultimately, it is God who hosts us and God who gives us what we need. And then our lives become an extension of this table to a hungry and thirsty world. And as we serve the world, we're changed. Amen.